now more than ever, people need to go within and plug into that cellular memory, plug into divine source, detach as much as possible from the matrix. Hello again, everybody. This is James Bartley, and you're listening to Bartley's Commentaries on the Cosmic Wars. Today I'm going to touch on a few subjects, uh, some of which I was not able to get to last time. I'm going to talk about the UFO attacks, alien attacks, from September 1977 to November 1977 in Corrales, Brazil, and other places in Brazil, including the provincial capital, Belém. This ties in, in some way, to what is going on today the aliens, and it wasn't just craft that were zapping people with lights. Actual beings, occupants of the craft, were, were showing up and aiming uh, pistol-like devices at people and zapping them face-to-face, as it were. Uh, the women were oftentimes zapped in the breast, and the men were oftentimes zapped in the neck, and one outcome of this, and it was probably intended on the part of the ETs, was that the hemoglobin within the the victims was leached out, pulled out of the uh, people that were blasted in this way, and these people became anemic. It was one of the side effects. Uh, intended side effects, if you will, of the of the attacks uh, by the ETs. I'm going to quote a little bit from the testimony of Dr. Wellade. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uh, she was the doctor that was most heavily involved in treating the uh, the victims of these UFO alien attacks. And it's it's important to get into this because some of the recent revelations coming out of the work of Dr. Charles Lieber who was being financed by the Chinese he was involved in the creation of synthetic iron iron proteins I think that has some bearing on on what's going on and I'll talk more about this but uh, I had Steve Mira on the show in the past and Steve talked about how the iron was depleted out of all these people that were zapped by the, the light rays uh, in Corrales and other places. Corrales is an island uh, at the mouth of the Amazon River in Brazil. But it wasn't just Corrales, a, a wide expanse, number of villages, number of towns, and, and like I said, including the, the provincial capital, the state capital, Belém, were subjected to these alien attacks. Uh, this eventually involved the military to, first they tried to cover it up, say it was all mass hallucinations, but they conducted their own crash, investigation, uh, research effort, and Steve Mira pointed out, and he had discussions with a number of other prominent researchers in the field, that one of the big takeaways from Corrales was the fact that these people were stripped, for the most part, of the iron proteins in, in, their, in their blood, okay? And I think that's key, and uh, Steve Mira also pointed out, and I would concur with this, assessment that from time immemorial, uh, medieval times, way back in ancient times, it was commonly understood even amongst the common folk, you didn't have to be a royal or a 
member of the astronomer priesthood to know this, but iron had properties that for whatever reason seemed to repel negative energies, negative influences, negative entities. It was very common in uh, the old days in England and the Scandinavian countries which were beset by attacks from the wee folk, the fairy folk, the fae, call them what you will, the gentry, that if you placed iron upon your person as an ornament, necklace, uh, on your wrist, whatever the case may be, it had some effect in mitigating or indeed preventing even uh, abductions, attacks by uh, the fairy folk. And it was common practice in the Middle Ages to place iron, iron ore, into the cots, into the cribs of infants. And this was done to prevent, to protect the children from being abducted and even worse, being replaced, uh, the changeling syndrome, wherein this was a, I wouldn't call it a superstition, I wouldn't call it folklore, this is a commonly held belief at the time, modern folklorists, you know, regard it however they might, but it was commonly understood uh, amongst the people back then that not only would the fairies come and abduct children sleeping at night, but sometimes they would replace the, the abducted children with a look-alike that was not their real child. Uh, this was the changeling syndrome. These children that were given in place of the abducted children, uh, provided by the aliens, were known as changelings, and the parents would immediately recognize there's something wrong about this kid, he's not quite the same, uh, and the belief gathered steam that the fae, the fairy folk had come along, taken their real kid, and then replaced it with a doppelganger, a changeling. So it was felt that if you place iron ornaments or iron ore into the cot or crib of the sleeping infant, it would protect them from this uh, outcome. So I'm, I'm going to talk a lot about Corallus. I'm going to talk about related issues, uh, the war on oxygen, the war on carbon dioxide, uh, the war on breathing. Uh, look at all these masked up cultists we see all around us. Uh, and the fact that geoengineering had occurred in ancient times and we see the uh, the byproduct of that, the outcome of that in the form of gigantic tree stumps and I'm going to talk about what scale invariant means in relation to these giant trees and the leftover, these giant tree stumps which we know as plateaus, mesas, buttes, they come under different names and there are well-known landmarks around the world and there's one right here in Australia, I'm not talking about Uluru, I'm talking about another one where it's part of the local Aboriginal lore that a creator god 
had come along, did some terrain modification, if you will, uh, and basically turned a mountain into a plateau. And in all likelihood, it wasn't a mountain to begin with, it was a giant tree. And then after the work had been done by this particular creator god, it went away. My work here is done kind of thing. And this was in the dream time. So right in the ab aboriginal lore, embedded in the aboriginal lore, is the notion that these creator gods in the green dream time had come along and, among other things, terraformed the planet, including uh, this place known as Mount Yango, Y-E-N-G-O. And I've seen Mount Yango in pictures uh, the time that I was out there uh, in this valley across the way from Mount Yengo. It was too foggy, too misty. I couldn't see it myself, personally, eyes on. But I've seen photos of the place. It is a plateau. It's a giant tree stump. I'll talk more about that later and about the uh, creator god who terraformed Mount Yengo because it, it ties into the iron depletion it ties into the synthetic iron it ties into the importance of prana uh, inhaling the life force it ties into the war on carbon dioxide uh, when you have gigantic trees you have a carbon dioxide rich atmosphere which means that it'll also be an oxygen rich atmosphere which means that in all likelihood things will tend to grow and be very large which is why in paleo-ancient times, things tended to be very large. Dinosaurs, uh, the mammals that came after the dinosaurs, uh, some of the aquatic marine life, huge sea scorpions, nine foot long, nine feet long, right? Uh, there was just so much more oxygen in those days. But now, because of this war on carbon dioxide, uh, we e even have... Uh, these big industrial, for lack of a better term, farms set up where they suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Uh, Mike Adams talked about this. I mean, that's something like right out of a Marvel Comics movie, right out of a Avengers movie, where these aliens come along and they set up these <laughs> terraforming machines. If they're not drilling huge holes in the ground, like in the Fantastic Four Silver Surfer movie, uh, they're sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in order to save the planet is the spin. Everything is an inversion. Everything is spin. But it ties into prana, the life force. And what do we see around us? We see these masked up cultists everywhere we go. Even in places where the mass mandates no longer apply, they're still walking around. You can see in their eyes, they got this hand, hangdog expression on their faces, right? This is as good as it's going to get, but they've still got the mask on, and they keep, just keep breathing and rebreathing the same toxins that are spewing out. And that goes against every principle of breathing, right? I mean, I'm an asthmatic. I know the importance of breathing. I've had bronchospasms, uncontrollable coughing so bad that on two occasions I busted ribs, okay? I busted ribs. And you can only imagine what it's like if you, f you feel a sneeze coming along and you have busted ribs. If you're lying down, you better stand up really quickly and, and 
press on your broken rib because when you sneeze, uh, ooh, the pain will bring you down to your knees, if not make you collapse onto the floor, okay? Uh, breathing, breath work, it, it's all part of these ancient disciplines in order to draw in life force. There is a light energy, invisible light spectrum, if you will, component to breath. It's just not the oxygen you're breathing in. It's the light energy, the prana, the life vitality force that goes with it. So what do we see? We have these uh, carbon dioxide sucking uh, farms uh, being set up in different places. We have global dimming. Uh, this mass aerosol spraying campaign going all over the planet blocking out sunlight. What does sunlight do? Uh, the sunlight comes in, it penetrates the epidermis, it goes into our bloodstream, uh, it creates vitamin D, alright, and there's a war on vitamin D, there's a war on vitamin D3. Everything is a satanic luciferian inversion in this reality. Everything that would make us he well, healthy, feel good about ourselves, everything is being made illegal and criminalized. And in its place, we're given all these toxins. We're, we're lathering up with petroleum-based sunscreen, etc., etc. I mean, this is a lunatic, sewer scum-run planet. That's why it, it is the way it is. And it all starts with a breath. And it started a long time ago. Someone or something got rid of these giant trees. I mean, think of the movie Avatar, okay? So I'm, I'm going to go into all these issues. And I'm going to, like I said, delve into issues that I was not able to delve in last time because I ran out of time, basically. Okay, Mount Yango. And this has to do with the Creator God. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly. Uh, Baami, spelled... B-A-I-A-M-E, and according to uh, CIApedia, Wikipedia, Baami, a creational ancestral hero, jumped back up to the spirit world after he created all the mountains, lakes, rivers, and caves in the area. Baami flattened the top of Mount Yengo when he jumped skyward, and the flat top is visible today. Okay? In Australian Aboriginal mythology, Baami was the creator god and sky father in the dreaming of several Aboriginal Australian peoples of southeastern Australia, such as the Wanarua, Kamalaroi, Eora, Darkenjung, and Wurundjeri peoples. So, Baami flattened the top of the mountain, Mount Yango, when, and then he jumped skyward, and the flat top is still visible today. Well, yes, it's a, it's a plateau. Think of Uluru, think of Devil's Tower. You may still be able to find uh, links on YouTube. I will look for them. If I find them, I will post them on the website and on the YouTube channel. But it's about ancient giant trees, ancient giant tree stumps. And I spoke a moment ago about scale invariance. We see this in the plasma electric model of the universe, which is the correct model, not this ridiculous, uh, you know, gas just agglomerates in one place and then miracle upon miracle upon miracle happens and uh, the nuclear, thermonuclear fusion theory, which is all nonsense. 
what you see in plasma electric laboratories where they conduct plasma research is what you see in space in stellar galactic scale stellar galactic formation the exact same things you see in a laboratory it replicates what we see scaled up in the cosmos and you have to get into the work of a good place to start would be David Talbot and then going back uh, Hannes Alphine and all the others that came before that what we now know is the plasma electric model of the universe which is the correct model well in a similar vein we see the same thing with these trees if you look at a tree or a tree stump and you look at the root system at the base of the tree stump if you look at lack of a better term the striations along this that run down the sides of the tree stump and the bark formations of the tree stump etc etc and then you look at close-ups of these huge plateaus Devil's Tower any number of them around the world countless numbers of these gigantic ancient tree stumps you see the exact same features the striations down the side the bark the the tree root systems at the base of the tree stumps and the gigantic tree stumps they are identical to what we see with regular sized trees only difference is it's been scaled up it's scale invariant so someone or something and I must re-emphasize this went to the trouble of cutting down all these gigantic trees from around the world turned them into huge tree stumps which we call plateaus mesas buttes there's like I said different names for them and you have Devil's Tower. Interesting how Spielberg chose Devil's Tower of all places uh, as the focal point for his Close Encounters of the Third Kind movie. Uh, Spielberg is a consummate insider, and yes, we know about the heinous practices that some of these insiders get into. I won't go into that, but uh, suffice it to say that he was provided some degree of insider knowledge. He may have not been told about the giant trees in ancient paleo-ancient times, but he was probably encouraged to use Devil's Tower as a focal point in the movie. And here we have, right in the Aboriginal lore, this creator god, Biami, however you pronounce his name, he creates essentially a uh, ecosystem, caves, rivers, etc., etc., for the native people who worship him. And then before he leaves, he flattens the top of Mount Yengo and then he jumps into the sky. Okay, go figure. He flattens the top of Mount Yengo. Right there, you have it in the lore of Aboriginal people who are the oldest surviving people on Earth. And then if you go back into the lore of the Aboriginal people, and then you read books like the Lemurian Scrolls, which is, is quite an interesting book written by an Indian Swami. 
who was given all this information interdimensionally, long story, go read the book. But m most of humanity, at least some of humanity, got its start in Australia. The Palladians colonized this place, okay? And there are probably planets where you will find what appear to be Aboriginal people, but they were brought here uh, as custodians of the land. And right there in the creation myths, here locally, right, we find the story of Mount Yango and Miami, however you pronounce his name, the sky god, flattens the top of a mountain, turns it into a plateau. Okay? So right there, that sinks in perfectly with the hypothesis of the scale invariance of trees slash tree stumps that we see all around us, and then scale it up to these gigantic tree stumps and gigantic trees in paleo-ancient times. Just imagine how rich in oxygen the atmosphere must have been back then. Imagine the growth cycle of plants. Imagine how big some of these plants were, not just trees, but just plants. How big the leaves must have been. What kind of riotous colors would have existed amongst plant life? And what has been done systematically over time, in linear time, they, whoever they are, cut down all these giant trees. And fast forward to today, we have global dimming, we have geoengineering geo in the form of this mass aerosol campaign resulting in global dimming. The atmosphere and the soil is saturated with heavy metals, aluminum, I think bismuth has been found in the heavy metals, etc., etc. And now they're now they have a war against carbon dioxide of all things. And as we know, carbon dioxide is essentially ingested, inhaled, call it what you will, by trees, and then recycled, and then the trees exude oxygen, and that's how it works here. And then we have the paradox. If, if carbon dioxide is so bad, why do people who run greenhouses and nurseries buy canisters of carbon dioxide, which they pump into their greenhouses and nurseries t precisely to make the plants grow faster and bigger and healthier and sturdier? Everything is an inversion in this world. Look around. Everyone's scared of breathing. Right? They're scared of breathing. They walk around in the open air. Uh, yeah, granted that you know the skies are covered with chem clouds and chem bursts and chemtrails. Okay, so we need to breathe as much oxygen as there is while we have the opportunity. No, they're they're making the cultists wear the mask, and they're even making them wear it indoors. I mean, this is completely whack job city we're talking about. This entire planet. So there's a war on oxygen. There's a war on carbon dioxide. There's a war on prana, the vitality force, the life essence force. There's a war against breathing. Okay, let's talk more about oxygen now and how it relates to the blood, hemoglobin, erythrocytes. What the locals in Brazil were calling these UFOs and these aliens in general that were blasting them with light beams, they called them chupa-chupas, chupa-chupa which basically means sucker, and from 
their perspective, the context was bloodsucker because they knew at an intuitive deep level that these beings, whoever they were, were literally sucking the blood out of them. And what they were sucking out of them in particular was the hemoglobin. Okay? Now let me read to you the statements made by a doctor who worked on these patients in Brazil. And she went under a lot of harassment. The army came along, the air force, the military came along and told her she needed to lie and she needed to state that what everyone was experiencing were not alien attacks but uh, mass hallucinations and of course she didn't go along with it. And understand this doctor was a skeptic at first until she had her own close encounter with, with a UFO, okay? Okay, here is what she said. This is Dr. Well-Ada. I'm probably mispronouncing that. W-E-L-L-A-I-D-E. -L -L and this is a, in response to a question uh, from a reporter. Uh, what hurt you the most? And keep in mind, this is not this is not a literal translation, uh, word for word. Uh, it comes off as broken English, uh, but that's how the transcript reads. So I, I will read it that way. And this is Doctor Well Reed's response to a question. Uh, it was the fact that in my 20, 22 years responsible for a healthcare unit. I had a lot of people in front of me needing research to find out why they were immobilized. One of the problems that a lot of these victims had after getting zapped by the light rays was paralysis. They were immobilized. Okay, continuing. To find out why they were immobilized, why they couldn't walk or talk. And when I looked at the hemogram to compare the last records, I've learned that they had a very low rates of erythrocytes and hemoglobin, okay? So let's do a little research. What are erythrocytes? An erythrocyte is a type of blood cell that is made in the bone marrow and found in the blood. Erythrocytes contain a protein called hemoglobin, which carries oxygen from the lungs to all parts of the body, okay? And let me look up what hemoglobin is. It's Okay, this is from the... Britannica.com website, and many of us in the old days had the Britannica encyclopedias. It was a staple in households in the old days, these encyclopedias. Hemoglobin is an iron-containing protein in the blood of many animals in the red blood cells, erythrocytes, of vertebrates that transports oxygen to the tissues. Hemoglobin forms an unstable, reversible bond with oxygen. In the oxygenated state, it is called oxyhemoglobin, and is bright red. In the reduced state, it is purplish blue. Hemoglobin develops in cells in the bone marrow that become red blood cells. When red cells die, hemoglobin is broken up, iron is salvaged, transported to the bone marrow by proteins called transferrins, okay? And we're talking about ferrins, spike ferrins, and all that other stuff that Dr. Charles Lieber was involved in and used again in the production of new red blood cells. The remainder of the hemoglobin forms the basis of bilirubin, a chemical that is excreted into the bile and gives the feces their characteristic yellow-brown color. TMI, too much information there. Okay, but the key takeaways from that is erythrocytes and hemoglobin. And what happens, among other things, to these victims getting zapped by these light rays in Brazil in September to uh, November 20, uh, 1977, is 
their bodies get stripped in large part of erythrocytes and hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the protein containing iron which transports oxygen to all the tissues of the body. So again, we have this concept of a war against oxygen, a war against breathing, a, a war against oxygenated cells. How does the Budwig diet work? Okay, And I've used the Budwig diet. I've uh, seen it in use in, in people that had chronic, in some cases, terminal illnesses. What the Budwig diet does is it takes flaxseed oil, which is rich in omega-3 fatty acids, and in a 1 to 3 ratio, one part flaxseed oil to three parts cottage cheese, uh, it's mixed up, you can add honey, berries, whatever you want, and then it's eaten. What the cottage cheese does, it provides the means to get the flaxseed oil and all the omega-3 fatty acids to get past the stomach into the bloodstream from whence it goes to all parts of the body and it also passes through the blood-brain barrier. And what it does is it creates an electron cloud, if you will, over, over the cells of the body and radically, radically oxygenates the cells. On the one hand, it triggers, I forget the term, apoptosis or something, the, the natural way of uh, killing off cells in a safe way so they don't turn anaerobic. So it kills off dead or useless cells, if you will, in a way that doesn't turn cancerous. And on the other hand, it saturates the remaining cells with oxygen. And this creates an oxygen-rich environment, which makes it very difficult for anaerobic, i.e. cancerous cells, to survive. Okay, And uh, people have survived numerous terminal illnesses from just having the Budvig diet and, of course, the... Uh, the sensors that YouTube are going to freak out about this on top of everything else. But it, it just goes to show that nature provides, folks. Dr. Johanna Budwig was a, uh, a physicist with degrees in chemistry. She was also uh, in, in, in the nuclear research as well as a pharmacist. She was triple degreed, if memory serves. Okay. So she came up with this Budwig diet, and, and the debunkers and the mainstream, lamestream medical industry, the death cancer industry, has gone out of its way to try to debunk the Budwig diet. But for lower grade, let's say, maladies, uh, it's it can be very effective uh, as against the higher grade, more serious maladies. Let's say it can be used as an adjunct. I would just for normal health purposes the Budvig diet is very good because again it oxygenates your body alright so there we go again with the whole concept of on the one one hand the negative archontic types are trying to strip us of oxygen down to the point of stripping us of hemoglobin and on the other hand when people well-meaning people good people come up with the means to oxygenate the body Oh well, that's that's a fraud. That's a scam. That's a ripoff. Uh, no, just stick to the slash and burn, chemical poisoning, radiation poisoning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right? That's exactly what you would come to expect in this whack job, uh, reptile-controlled planet we're on.
So, the Budwig diet is an example of what oxygenating the body on a mass scale can do. Okay? It goes back to prana, the vital vitality, the vital life force essence. Now, what do we have with the royals, the reptile bloodline types, the Windsors and others like them? They have an issue called porphyria. Interesting. What is porphyria? Okay, let me read up what porphyria is and we'll see the relationship, the connection. This is from rarediseases.info.nih, NIH, November India Hotel.gov. Uh, summary Porphyrias are a group of blood conditions caused by a lack of an enzyme in the body that makes heme an important molecule that carries oxygen throughout the body and is vital for all of the body's organs. Major types include ALAD deficiency porphyria, acute intermittent porphyria, uh, and a, they mention a few other types of porphyria. Uh, the most common type of porphyria is porphyria cutanea tarda. Some of the symptoms of porphyria include blistering, swelling, and itching when the skin is exposed to sun. Other symptoms may also include pain, numbness, or tingling, vomiting, constipation, and intellectual disability. There is no known cure for porphyria, but the various types of different courses of treatment and may include bone marrow transplant. Of course, they have the standard disclaimer that, you know, no known cure, yada, yada, yada. This was well known for ages that the royals had problems with porphyria, what they used to call hemophilia. It's a blood disorder. Now, in, in the vampire lore, why do vampires need blood? Well, one suggestion was that they were lacking in, surprise, surprise, hemoglobin. There was, they were lacking in enough red blood cells to sustain them, right? So they had to keep getting more and more of it. If you look at the serial murderer Richard Chase, the vampire killer of Sacramento, that's what he believed. He needed... He felt the voices inside of him, the entities inside of him, were telling him over and over he needed fresh blood, otherwise he was going to die, right? That's why he went around killing people and then doing horrific things to them and, and drinking their blood, right? It always comes back to the blood, always comes back to the oxygen, always comes back to the oxygen levels in the blood. Uh, these negative entities and then their hybridized uh, sewer scum, plantation managers that rule this planet, would-be rulers of this planet, they have these issues. They have these blood issues. And that's why what they've been doing since time immemorial is they've been preying on the, the weak, the innocent, uh, the local populations for blood, essentially. And especially in the member segment, I'm going to talk more about a lot of those activities going back to ancient medieval medieval and ancient times as far as the blood is concerned and what have you but suffice for our purposes now it's yet another example of this connection these parasitic archontic entities whether they're stripping the hemoglobin through some light uh, phenomena means like the aliens in Corallis and in Brazil in general in that province were doing or as we've seen throughout the lore, the supernatural lore, uh, by one means or another, these uh, hybrids, reptilian Draco hybrids, they have this uh, compulsion, this obsession with blood.
we even see this in the sports world. Uh, what was some of these athletes uh, who was at long distance bicyclists, the uh, bicycle races over the French Alps, name escapes me at the moment. A lot of the people around him described him as a tyrant. But anyway, it turns out that he was paying top dollar for highly oxygenated children's blood. Go figure, right? Now, I don't even want to contemplate, postulate, hypothesized. Lance Armstrong, that was the guy's name. Uh, chances are the children didn't willfully, willingly donate the blood, and they're too young to make that kind of a decision anyway. It was somehow, by hook and crook, these big-shot athletes and others uh, that have the money and have this kind of our complex uh, overdrive thing going on, uh, they acquire children's blood and they give themselves transfusions. And it makes them have more endurance, more strength, etc., etc. We saw the inverse of this in that TV show, True Blood, where th there was this um, black market of vampire blood, and it gave the users like a mega high and gave them momentary strength, right? And we saw it in the short-lived TV series, Blade, of one season. And I wish they'd gone on, because it, by the last couple episodes, they were getting into some serious hardcore uh, issues of bloodlines, royalty, uh, global domination, etc., etc. Then <laughs> memo came out from on high saying, uh, you got to stop this, right? And what was going on in that show there was a breed of vampire slayer known as ashers who were ashers they would go out and they would slay vampires uh, with silver and in the process they would turn the vampires into ash they would collect the ash from the uh, just slain vampire and then market it because it was used as an illicit street drug uh, you know people would snort or inject the ash from the dead vampire and they'd you know, get a super high and they develop superpowers, uh, you know, for a certain period of time until the high wears off, so to speak. So again, it comes down to the blood. And, and what do we hear about the blood royal? That used to be a, a term that was used a lot. Not so much anymore, but, well, mid-20th century, they were still using the term blood royal. Does it differentiate between the blood of the royals, the reptilian hybrid uh, plantation managers, if you will, and the rest of society, right? The commoners, the, uh, the plebs. And they talk about blue bloods. And they talk about, and I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the characteristics of the blood of the royals who had porphyria when it was exposed, right? This is why when, when blood is gushing out of an artery, artery it, it's highly enriched with oxygen, that's why it appears blood red. Now, what they found with the blood, and when they took some of the blood out of the royals, and others afflicted with porphyria, and it's uh, various types of porphyria, they would notice that the blood didn't look bright red, it would have this kind of purplish kind of, you know, tinge to it, sometimes a bluish tinge, so that also 
was one of the reasons why the royals of various stripes in, uh, in the uh, Near East, East, and, and Europe, they were called blue bloods, right? And that notion of the blue bloods was carried over into America from the UK, what, what became the UK. Then you had the so-called Eastern establish, Establishment of Blue Bloods. That used to be a very common term, but uh, we don't hear that term much anymore. So those are some key points that I wanted to throw out. I'm going to delve more into the hardcore aspects, and I touched a little bit about it, touched on a little bit about it with uh, Richard Chase. Uh, the vampire killer of Sacramento. Uh, the voices within him were telling him, well, your blood's going to turn to powder if you don't have fresh blood every day, right? And like other serial killers, entity-infested serial killers, he would not just kill people and, you know, traumatize them, torture them, but he would also dissect them, joint them, cut them up, and he would eat them, so he was a cannibal, and he, of course he would drink their blood. And the term cannibal doesn't even really apply to these reptilian Draco hybrid sewer scum, because they're not like us, okay? They're not quite human. And this concept of cannibalism is, is pervasive throughout human history, uh, throughout North America, long before uh, the Spaniards came, long before the colonists from England came. Many of the Native American tribes were practicing cannibalism. So there is this particular persistent notion within the New Age in particular that uh, we, we should only think in terms of the, Nat uh, the Native Americans in terms of uh, how spiritual they were and are and uh, how much they lived in, in tune with nature, etc., etc. Well, that may apply to some of them, but certainly not to all of them, alright? If you were a homesteader on the plains of Texas, you, you wouldn't want to have been captured by the Comanches, okay? Because if you were lucky, they killed you immediately. If not, uh, you were in for a world of hurt. They were into slavery, they were into gang rapes, they were into uh, mutilations. They were the scourge of the, not only the homesteaders, but the other Indian tribes. Uh, like the Apache, they used to bit slap and kick the Apache's ass. That just shows you how badass the Comanches were, right? So, this notion of blood drinking and all that that entails. Remember, we were talking about the life force, the prana, uh, the living vitality, and also the fact that the blood and the DNA within the blood connects one to the information field. Breathwork and inhalation and a lot of the breathwork uh, practitioners and I do this too when you breathe in you visualize breathing in 
literally light and allowing it to permeate throughout your whole body right and I what I do I take it a step further I visualize not only the light as I inhale permeating throughout my whole body and lighting up and activating replenishing my cells but also re-energizing charging up my energy bodies my light body if you will okay now let's take it a step further where the blood is concerned so within blood you have all this hemoglobin you have all this oxygen when someone is breathing right when someone doesn't have uh, you know hardcore uh, pulmonary uh, breathing issues chronic uh, pulmonary respiratory issues the blood is also part and parcel of the information field DNA is also part and parcel of this information field. DNA is a transceiver, as we've said before, a sender and receiver of information. And now we see what all these nanobots, nanolipids, all these delivery systems. Uh, Karen Kingston, I think her name is. Uh, she's been doing a great job going on Stu Peter's show talking about you know, those identical circular device things that are found in some of the stabinations, right? and how through her diligent research they are actually a delivery mechanism the delivering payloads of something right we already know about the messenger rna aspect uh well, we have an idea about them anyway we have an idea about what the graphene does etc cetera, etc cetera. so you have these circular dislike objects that can only be seen through a powerful uh, electron type microscope and each one of these are a delivery system. So our DNA, our cells, uh, our molecules, our atoms, we're being changed. Well, not us, because <laughs> you know, we know better. But uh, those who have gone along with these so-called treatments, uh, they're getting changed from the inside out. And... What's it doing to the blood, the DNA, the cellular connection to the information field? Okay. Sometimes in cinema, they show us things, right? I talked about how, in the past numerous times, about how when a reptilian being or a reptilian Draco human hybrid uh, of the uh, astral raptoid variety, the type that can astrally rape women, in our example, how for pure sadistic uh, self-centered narcissistic pleasurable purposes while they are astrally raping the woman and it comes off when I say astrally it's almost a misnomer because the woman is feeling it uh, full physicality in real time what the reptilian Draco hybrid and or reptilians and Dracos themselves can do is they can make the woman relive in real time while she's being raped previous sexual abuse in our example say she was molested uh, by a uh, reptilian human hybrid when she was a young girl because of the reptilian draco human hybrid slash reptilian draco's ability to plug into not just the 
cellular memory and tap into the uh, subconscious parts of the mind of the victim, uh, the woman in our example. <clears throat> but it has the ability to tap into this aforementioned information field and cause that woman being raped to relive in real time the memories of the childhood abuse she endured because always remember these reptilian dracos and these reptilian draco human hybrids they have the facility not only to tap into the information field but every reptile who came before them every reptile who lives in parallel to them and every reptile in general that was is involved in our contact nefarious activities such as the rape of human women they can plug into the same information field the same memory stream if you will so that raping reptilian hybrid or that raping reptilian or draco can literally across time across space plug into the consciousness of the uh, the perpetrator who was molesting or raping otherwise raping or molesting the young girl they can plug into the not only the memory but the consciousness itself and it it compels the the victim in our example to relive in real time the abuse she had suffered from this reptilian human hybrid in our example because that reptilian human hybrid rapist perp himself is plugged into this hive consciousness plugged into this information field so getting down to the blood where the blood comes in not only the present incarnation of the uh, okay let's continue the example let's say poor gal that, that was raped by the um, uh, pedophile when she was a young girl and later she's getting uh, astrally raped by this reptilian human hybrid raptoid later in life uh, she goes on to get a treatment or treatments she gets stabinated okay now prior to that time when anyone or anything gets a hold of her DNA gets a hold of her, a blood sample from her not only are they able to access her information field if they have the technology or the metaphysical means to do so her memories her information field perhaps even karmically plug into her absolutely they will be able to plug into her ancestral memory okay the ancestral DNA which uh, is latent within her cells within her chromosomes within her very DNA and the DNA itself is, is part of this information field so in our example not only are they able to access one's information field and also their, their ancestral memory and ancestral information from everyone that, that went before her in her family tree but going forward now that she's had these stabinations and the messenger RNA has been thus inserted and because of the nanobot nanotech uh, delivery system mechanism the graphene etc the ability of 
this technology, this AI technology, as it were, to self-assemble and go where it needs to go within the, uh, the human being, whether it's to go to the brain, whether it's to go to major organs, whether go to the reproductive system, whatever the case may be, now it's there's some kind of overlay going on, okay? What makes this messenger RNA different from the original DNA that it's supplanting and rewriting the code, taking over essentially what is being put in? And I, I, I would believe, and I'm just thinking out loud here, but it's, it's a feeling I have that for certain people, certain bloodlines, certain individuals, certain racial profiles, certain DNA profiles even, it's quite possible that certain people will be given specific types of treatments that are specific and unique to them. And because of the transceiver nature of DNA and the transceiver nature of what's being put into the people's uh, bodies, information will be sent back. Okay, this is what we found within the uh, body chemistry within the, the uh, cellular makeup of this individual go, gets sent back to some cloud, some mainframe, who knows what, right? And then commands are sent back based on the telemetry uh, sent out by the, uh, the AI bots. Now commands are sent back for that AI within people to do something, right? So, what does it mean? Does it mean that from that point onward, that person is cut off from their ancestral memory, they're cut off from the information field, or is it augmented in some way? Okay, they still have remnants of that, there's a residual trace of that, but now they're, they're plugged into this other information field, right? Uh, so that even when they expire, even when they shed this mortal coil, and they leave the, you know, their spirit, if you will, leaves its body, its spirit from a bioenergetic aspect. And this is one of the things, that the takeaways we got from Dulce and other places. Dulce, Section D, the, uh, uh, the deep underground base there in Dulce, New Mexico, they were working on the human soul. They were working on the bioplasma nature of the human uh, energy fields. And also remember, I don't, I don't have too much time to go into it in this segment, but I'll get more into it uh, in the member section and, and later on. The Dan Burish case, look that one up. It still has relevance, right? He was working at S4. He was a microbiologist uh, hired by Department of Naval Intelligence, same way that Bob Lazar was, hired by Department of Naval Intelligence. And... Dan Burich worked with an alien he called J-Rod because the race of aliens was called J-Rods. And what's interesting was, according to the information he got uh, around the time of uh, leading up to 2012, humanity went into a big divergence, right? There was some kind of event that happened at a DNA level, something to do with mutations, that caused some... Uh, some of these ET races well let me rephrase that some of the ET races we see out there or hear, hear about according to 
uh, Dan Burish were actually originally human beings, but they split off. Now what's been going on? Well, what have we been talking about in this show lately and in many other shows? The fact that the human race is being changed from the inside out, right? Messenger RNA, graphene. I mean, these people, I mean, technically they're under a patent, so they're no, no longer even considered humans anymore, according to the patent office. They're getting changed in, from the inside out. And what did Dan Burish talk about? He said, beginning around 2010, 2012, something happened to the human race. And you go back to the work of Dr. David Martin. He, he tracked the patents for some of these uh, so-called treatments and, and the computer-generated DNA uh, sequences for these, uh, let's say, plagues, right? So-called plagues. He tracks it back to the late 90s, uh, 2000, up to 2010, when they come up with the patents for, for these uh, these maladies, let's say, right? Uh, the gene sequencing, which were computer-generated, and then the the treatments, the stabinations, so-called, right? We, we know they're not really stabinations. They're, what they are is gene therapy of some kind. But at any rate, we'll just call them stabinations. The stabinations, the patents for them, were coming out around the same time. Uh, late 1990s, 2000, early 2000s. And Dan Burich was working on, and I'm not going to get into the whole debate about the germ theory uh, versus the environment theory. Uh, are viruses really exosomes? These people, even at a deep black, uh, highly classified nature like Dan Burich uh, was involved in, they're still compartmentalized. So they're still going to use terms that they're familiar with from their studies, uh, their surface level studies in schools and universities and whatnot. So I'm trying my best to remember the details here. i got to go back and, and do some more reading. But uh, Burish was working on the, the tissue samples, cell samples from this group of ETs called the J-Rods. And what the J-Rods, were two types of J-Rods, one that was about 45,000 years in our linear future and another about oh, 52,000 years in our linear future. They, they split off and they split off again, basically. And one turned out to be more negative than the other race. But one or both, at least one of them, the type that Dan Burish worked with, they came back from time to try to fix their their genetics, fix their biology, right? And according to the information that Burich got, the being that he was working with, the J-Rod he was working with, actually came to Earth from the, uh, the crash in Kingman, Arizona, uh, May 1953. Uh, J-Rod was a survivor, right? Next thing you know, he winds up uh, at S4, and he's teamed up with Dan Burish. And Dan Burish is working on the the cell tissues, and the the J rods develop some kind of neuropathy, some kind of big time defect, which through various mutations, probably perhaps some radiation somewhere along the way, uh, either here on Earth or off world, they mutated into this ET looking race. So they've come back in time to try to fix their biology. Okay, and. Dan Burish was working in uh, a germ-free, contamination-free 
biosphere. Uh, I forget what level at S4, level 4 or somewhere. And then later, he was taken to Dulce, Section D, where they wanted him to work on uh, viruses, quote-unquote. Again, I'm not going to get into the debate about exosomes, viruses. For his purposes, he he's familiar with the term viruses. That's what he was taught. That's what his controllers wanted him to work on, viruses. So we'll go with that, right? They wanted him to work on viruses that human beings are familiar with, viruses in human tissue, human cell samples, etc., etc., and also alien viruses that are to be found in alien tissue, particularly the J-Rod race. And they wanted him to combine the two, okay? So, does that have any bearing on what's going on today? Now, Dan Burish, for his part, said, no, I can't do this. This is where I get off the bus as far as this part of the program is concerned, okay? Just, you know, I don't want to go here. I don't like Dulcie. I want to go back. So, eventually, they sent him back to S4 because he didn't want to continue with that phase of the project, Right? So, is there some connection? I talked in a previous podcast, previous podcast a number of times actually, that um, one of the outcomes of the recoveries of uh, alien bodies in the old days, and this came out in the Majestic Papers, uh, Robert and Ryan Wood, the father and son team, the Majestic Papers go to that website, where when you read into those documents, they talk about the possibility of the alien biology, the um, alien tissues, alien... uh, physiological specimens being used for purposes of bio-warfare at some future date. And then you fast forward to here's Dan Burish being taken from S4 to Dulce Base, uh, Section D, which there may have been an existing alien base there, probably was the uh, Apaches on the Hikaria uh, Apache Reservation had been complaining about ETs kidnapping their, their women and children for centuries. Before, even before the Spaniards showed up, right? So that base was already there, probably as a result of this <laughs> increasingly, as it seems to me, one-sided treaty between you know certain ET races and uh, the reptilian Draco hybrid plantation manager government uh, of the U.S., right? This seemingly one-sided treaty part of the deal, a big part of the deal, was allowing certain ET races, the Greys, and perhaps these J-Rods, to abduct humans, okay? And uh, this delves into whole other areas, which are, to me, in my mind, are interconnected. The uh, cattle mutilation phenomena, remember that uh, in a pinch, FEMA has already said that they could use bovine blood in place of human blood, if there's ever a shortage of human blood, because there's a very close, go-figure, genetic match between bovine blood, cow blood, and human blood and a lot of us that have been deeply involved in in alien abduction research know that the uh, cattle mutilation syndrome, the draining of the blood, uh, the precise laser incisions between cells of the the cows and other animals that has everything to do with, probably not strictly limited to, but everything to do with the human cloning process, go figure, right? We know that human mutilations follow the same pattern, the draining of the blood, coring out of the rectum, uh, the snipping of, of uh, one of the lips, uh, clipping off of one of the ears, etc., etc. Uh, the, the same uh, surgical precision 
treatments, if you will, or uh, excisions meted out to the cattle has also been observed in humans, okay? So this begs a question. That program that they try to bring Dan Burish into at Dulcie, where they wanted him to combine, for lack of a better term, earth viruses and alien viruses for some specific bio-warfare purpose, does that have anything to do with what's going on now, right? Because I'm sure the program in Dulcie would have continued whether Dan Burish was involved in it or not, okay? And if you can find it, get the book uh, written by Bill Hamilton about Dan Burish, who also his original name, of memory serves, was Daniel Crane. He was another guy that was born, literally born into the program, similar to Dan Sherman. Uh, he was... Uh, his family tree was being exploited by uh, a faction of ETs with the connivance of deep black elements of, of naval intelligence, the NSA, and, and other groups to further some alien agenda, right? Now, what may have started as some kind of altruistic program, if you will, to help these J-Rods because they're, they have reached an evolutionary uh, dead end because they'd mutated and according again to Dan Burish, it, that mutation that change really started around the 2012 time frame and that was nine, no, ten years ago now, right? So, one last bit about the blood and I talked earlier but I never got into it, was uh, how, how so much of this plays out in cinema right? In the classic Underworld trilogy. I think there's at least three. Maybe, maybe they made a fourth movie. I don't know. But uh, it's the old lichens, vampire, werewolves versus vampires thing. Okay, That's been done again and again. But I, I think in the Underworld series they did a good job of it. But what some of the vampires were, I guess all of the vampires were able to do was uh, if they wanted information from someone, another vampire, and they weren't being forthcoming, even, even under torture, what the vampires would do is, is bite into the neck of, of the recalcitrant vampire, suck their blood in, and then immediately get all. They would plug right into the information field all the nefarious double dealing and uh, deceptions and machinations. The vampire uh, who's having the blood drained from him, everything that that guy was up to that he wouldn't divulge under torture, is coming through in the blood. So the vampire sucking the blood, who was interrogating the guy, the other vampire, he's getting all the information, everything that was hidden from him by this vampire he's torturing, now it's coming through to him in the information field because he's ingesting the blood. Go figure. DNA is the currency of the universe. And within DNA are latent metaphysical powers and the means to plug into the greater information field, which transcends time and space is multidimensional, multiversal if that's a word. Anyhow, we've reached the end of this segment of Bartley's commentaries on the Cosmic Wars. And if you like what we do, if you believe what we do, please go to thecosmicswitchboard.com, sign up and become a member, and we'll see you at the top of the next segment.